Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos, and today I have a very special guest, good friend of mine, a uh, someone I look up to in the industry, but is also weirdly a friend of mine. So uh, that's uh, Tim Masso. Hey, Tim. It's good to be here, Josh. This is fun. Always good to podcast with an old friend. And what has it been, eight years now at this point? We've been around the world, all over the country, and now we're here. It's a long journey leading up to... Well, today, your podcast, and I guess I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but what is our topic? Yeah, so uh, so yeah, we'll just jump right into it. So our topic today will be, I guess it's titled uh, Rolex Myths and Misconceptions. But, you know, it's funny, over the years, we have a lot of conversations with, uh, with customers and collectors and other dealers, and you hear people saying just things that are like provably false about um, you know, Rolex watches in general and the brand and the company. So these things have kind of piled up. And I thought that who better to discuss, you know, the facts of a situation than Tim Massa. Yeah, I'm definitely up on the hardware and the history. I'm going to lean on you a little bit to bust some dealer myths and market myths. But I think we're a good combo because I focus on the watch and you focus on the world of the watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So well, uh, before we get started, we have uh, a trading desk um, tradition, and that's the customary risk check. So why don't you go first and I'll go second. I am super predictable. You guys, if you know me, you know my watch, Zinn, and it's the EZM 1.1, 43mm tegmented steel, a 500-piece edition from 2017. It's a tribute to their own EZM-1, which was a much smaller titanium watch built for the German Federal Customs Enforcement Service for about 10 years from 1997 to 2007. So this watch is very special to me. It's been the only watch I've worn since 2018. It will not be my last watch, contrary to rumors, but there is something wonderful about building up half a decade's worth of memories behind a single watch. And when the time for the transition comes, I think this one's going to go to a member of my family and we'll keep it in the family. That's awesome. I think I sold you that watch, didn't I? You did. It was on a trade. So there you go. That's a big trade. Well, <laughs> Big trade on one side, but that's right. When you when you reached your uh, the pinnacle of your JLC collecting, you decided that was that was it, and now I need to consolidate. And, and you did more consolidating than I've ever done with any other customer ever. People who talk about consolidation have nothing on you, Tim. Yeah, well, I, I would say that it was a little bit like the big bands or the ocean liners of the 1930s. Like the the fall came immediately after the the peak at Apex. I'd reached the point I wanted to in my collection. I'm like, I'm good. Push reset, and I never regretted it. Yeah, yeah, you did that, man. That's uh, I, I, uh, I definitely commend you because I have way too many watches, and my consolidation is like trading three watches for one, but I still have you know twenty or thirty watches, so it doesn't really it doesn't really happen or work. But um, that's yeah, awesome. So, well, so on my wrist today, I have uh, my I guess it's probably my favorite watch watch that'll probably never leave the the collection, and that is my favorite Panerai, in my opinion, the best Panerai ever made the best Panerai if you ever want to just have a one Panerai watch collection, and that's the PAM 233. Um, I'm sure Tim is familiar, but for those who are not, it's a 44 millimeter 1950s case. It's manual wine, eight-day movement. Um, it has AM, PM indicator, and it's a GMT, um, So and a date on the on the dial as well. And uh, it's it's a tremendous watch. It has the, um, the sandwich dial, which a lot of people prefer from Panerai. It really, it has kind of everything that you can – that you'd want in a Panerai watch because some Panerai watches kind of go over the top with some of these things with their flyback chronographs and, you know, equations of time and things like that. I'd say 
It's the most complicated Panerai that I would purchase, um, but it's not over the top in that sense. And it's a watch that you right now, it's got a, a little over $12,000 retail, but you can find them all day long for, let's say, maybe in bad condition around 7000 and in like tip-top condition, full set with the, with the dot dial, which is one variant that people kind of chase, you can find that for around ten. So you can, it's a, it's a tremendous steel sport watch that you can buy under 10,000. I've had this watch now since 2019, I guess. And I haven't thought about selling it once. I got to say, I love that piece because it's one of the first in-house caliber Panerai watches. And that first generation of Panerai movements, the 2000 series, the 2002, 3, 4, 5, they were so over-engineered. Panerai didn't want to just incrementally improve on value and ETA calibers. So they built something that looked like it would have gone into a JLC. And the 233 is a great example of that because from that peak, again, it's a little bit like my watch collecting, you had the steady decline in the sophistication of Panerai movements until you got to stuff like the 999 and the 1000. And you're like, okay, now at this point, we're, we're one, maybe one qualitative grade above the ETA. We've regressed back to the mean. Yeah. And, and except that they're not easily uh, serviced because you can't get the parts for them like the ETA. So uh, in my in my opinion, I would say I would go for the ETAs when go, we're going for those watches. Yeah, if you want to go with a simple pattern, I definitely go with one of the ETAs. Have it serviced behind your house. You know, you can yeah. fix those things in the shed with a hammer. Oh, I mean, very easy to do and and tremendous value. But all right, cool. Well, uh, again, appreciate you uh, you chatting with me. So let's get started, Tim. Let's start with well. So we could talk about the misconceptions. Uh, from a business standpoint, but those ones are in a lot of ways more controversial and probably ones that we'll get more in depth with. So let's start with some of their history, right? Um, well, I'm going to start this way. All right. So here's a fun fact about Panerai that I guess was probably a misconception, but not so controversial, right? Um, and that is that, uh, or did I say Panerai? I meant Rolex. There is some crossover between them. You're not entirely yeah. wrong. So that's enough. That's one of the facts we'll throw in here, but, um, but a misconception about Rolex is that it's a Swiss company or it was born as a Swiss company. And that's that's not the case. Right, Tim? That's right. It was created originally in, in London as Wilsdorf and Davis. And, you know, for its first 15 years or so, uh, you know, there were at, at a minimum dual operations between Switzerland and London. They didn't entirely depart until I would say probably they made the move between 1915 and 1920. They really moved over to Swiss location and production, and they finished up in England. Uh, and, of course, they also changed the name to something that meant effectively nothing, but was at the time believed to be universally pronounceable. Yeah. So Wilsdorf and Davis ultimately became Rolex, and then Rolex continued to expand in Geneva and later Bien, the border city between the German and the Swiss, or the German and French Swiss, and, and gradually became the Rolex we know today. And they continued expanding really right up until about 2004 when they bought the old Aigler, which finally brought their Bien-based movement manufacturer entirely in-house. So spread over about a century, you have the transition to full Swiss manufacturer production from what was originally founded as sort of a family concern. And... Wilsdorf and Davis were connected by family, by, by marriage. Um, and so, yeah, you, you did have that shift over from London, which was important because in the 18th and 19th century, London was viewed as 
along with Paris and Geneva, one of the three keystone cities in watchmaking. And British watchmaking, even as late as the early 20th century, still carried a lot of weight. There were major markets, major vendors, and still a lot of know-how available. But uh, it, it didn't last. It, obviously, today it's a Swiss company, though I like to say that Rolex has a little bit of German and British genes in it because it had a Bavarian-born co-founder. And of course, it was originally founded in London. So even though it's in French Switzerland, for the most part, it has more of a Germanic or Teutonic sensibility to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, well, the industrial design of Rolex is one that a lot of people obviously uh, can relate to and they love. And and yeah, it's not, it's not totally Swiss French, right? Or French Swiss. Exactly. Like if you want to look at French Swiss, I think something that's purely French Swiss, look at something like Vacheron, look at something like Laurent Ferrier, Rolex has always been much more circumspect and restrained. Not not to say they've always been stolid or stodgy, just they're generally not what you think of when you think of horlogerie fantastique. You know, it's not the kind of watch that you're going to see built up like something, even something as wacky as a Vacheron jump hour. Although make no mistake, there are jump hour watches in Rolex's history. So that's the other myth. <laughs> Rolex yeah. For every Rolex fact, there's there's an exception. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have. Yeah, in the early days, Rolex was very experimental. Whereas now, experimental for Rolex is uh, as a coral dial on an OP forty one, right? Yeah, right. And I, I just I love the fact that whenever you try to make a, a global universal statement about Rolex, you're always like, oh crap. Yeah, Rolex does make a limited edition. Or Rolex did make a jump hour. Rolex did build a display case back, and you always find an exception. So th that's that's one of the fun things about Rolex. Rolex is not necessarily, you know, your great aunt. It is not this old, hidebound, tradition-bound, unadventurous, stodgy sort of institution. It's got those aspects, and then they'll do something that just clobbers you over the head, like the Milgauss Z Blue. So that's one Rolex myth busted in the process. Rolex is not always boring. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Totally. I mean, you, there's, there's a lot of excitement from Rolex. So, all right. Uh, here's another one that I found online when I was, when I was Googling and looking on some of these message boards is that uh, there's contention that Rolex made the first waterproof watch. Yeah, highly unlikely. There were watches made prior to the 20th century that had water-resistant cases. There were efforts at making water-resistant watches, uh, and some of them were quite successful. Of course, Rolex popularized the water-resistant watch, and I think what Rolex accomplished was creating the tolerances in the machinery used and using gaskets other than lead, because early on a lot of water-resistant watches used uh, lead to achieve water resistance. And Rolex was, you know, with their threaded crowns and their threaded case backs, and ultimately the use of rubber, they were able to achieve water resistance on a massive scale. And from, I believe, about 1926, sell the Oyster case very profitably on the mass market. And that's one of the things about Rolex. Rolex is rarely first with anything, but you can name a whole host of things that Rolex popularized. You know, Rolex, Rolex is like, I guess, the Aretha Franklin of, of of watchmaking maybe not first with the actual lyrics but definitely first with the impact yeah. uh, and that, that's a fact that's that's true with the automatics too well it's it's exactly that was one of the other things too that they were the first automatic watch and i think it's the same i mean it's you know they're almost like the, the henry ford of the of the watch world right like they didn't invent the car but they they figured out a way to make them faster and better than anyone else and sell them to as many people as possible and i think rolex 
even with what you touched touched on before in terms of how their name uh, came to be, it's for first foremost a marketing company, which is my next or leads to my next kind of misconception is that Rolex watches are all just marketing. There's no substance. They're crappy watches. In fact, I've had people look me right in my face and say they are junk. They sell junk to uh, overpriced junk to people, and it's just a marketing scam. Uh, what do you have to say to that? Well, I, I would say that that's completely off base. That lacks any kind of nuance or deeper understanding. When you look at a Rolex watch, it's all about the brand, the design, the continuity, the history, the tradition. There's a fact that applies to almost every Rolex watch, which is that in its era, it represents the best that industrial technology can provide. That doesn't mean that the watch is going to be artisanally beautiful the way a Vacheron might be or the way a Laurent Ferrier or a Marco Lang might be. But then again, Rolex is building at much higher volumes. They can do things that those other brands can't. If you go inside a Rolex Daytona and you start looking at the parts, there have been at least four major revisions to the Daytona movement since 2000. Almost none of them have been publicized by Rolex because it doesn't need to brag about a blue oxidized niobium zirconium hairspring or a Liga etched chronograph bridge center wheel. All of these things are incorporated using fabrication methodologies that no independent could ever dream of, much less implement reliably and back with a warranty. When you look at the quality of a Rolex movement, it doesn't come across in the way it's finished. And there was a, a famous online watch writer and, and self-taught watchmaker named Walt Odette, who got himself in a lot of trouble with the Rolex community, even Rolex a little bit, by talking about how crude the movement in the Rolex Explorer was. And yet he marveled at how well it kept time. And that's because a little bit like JLC, but on a bigger scale, Rolex generally finishes parts where metal meets metal, things that are too small to appreciate easily with the naked eye or even with a loop. And it is those points where metal meets metal, the, the interaction of pinion leaves with gear teeth, or the interaction of a pivot with a jewel. This is where Rolex is going to achieve virtuosity and in industrial perfection and create those watches that they can guarantee will run minus two plus two seconds per day, even though to the naked eye, they don't look any better finished than 90s Panerai. Again, saying these are crap is missing the point. If you look at the quality of what Rolex does with materials, the ability to blend and smelt their own red gold to mix in palladium at a ratio that the red gold won't fade, you, you can't do that if you're a craft-level manufacturer. You might have the most beautiful bevels in the world, but if you're trying to make your own gold, it's going to be ugly and it's going to work out badly. So, yeah, Rolex is basically – look at it as Lexus. What makes a Lexus a Lexus? A hundred thousand little things that all add up to refinement and class-leading durability. It's not going to be the fastest. It's not going to be the most emotional. And if you want something that's truly bespoke, you're probably not going to Lexus or Rolex but that level of consistency and perfection to the point where the watches can go 10 years between services, you're not going to find that even at Zenith, which is, you know, a Bollywood manufacturer and a movement specialist. You're not going to find that at a lot of companies that, that boast of their fine finish. Longa certainly offers nothing like that. So saying that Rolex is junk is a person who has a sophomoric level of understanding trying to pitch himself as an expert and failing miserably. Yeah, that's that's uh, more eloquent than I would have stated it. I would have called them a shithead. And, and I've met many, many of these guys who, you know, just because, you know, it's not a lot of hand finishing, they've decided it's junk, but, you know, it's, it is missing the point. And, and one thing is, though, you know, if we're comparing market prices, especially in today in 2021, um, to uh, 
you know, other manufacturers. I mean, so, so if you're going to spend whatever, $38,000 on a, on that Daytona, you can certainly find a, a better use for that money within watch collecting, Swiss watch collecting, right. And set in the sense of finding something that's truly rare, truly handmade, that's actual art. Like you can get a really serious watch for that price point, but for the retail price, which again, you know, one is set by the manufacturer and one is set by just, you know, the, the market at large, the buyers, um, for $13,500. Now you are looking at a watch that is certainly within the value. You know, there's a value proposition at that, at, at that price point, ceramic bezel, you know, you're getting a workhorse movement, um, chronograph also from an iconic manufacturer that's going to run. I mean, how many other chronographs can you buy for $13,500 that you're going to get a five-year warranty? That's a truly, you won't, you won't even need it, but like you're going to get that. Yeah. And I would even say there was a document Rolex published right around the time they expanded the warranties to five years. I haven't seen it since, but it was very much real because I downloaded it from their website and they were talking about 10 year service intervals, yep. mostly for three reasons. The manufacturing tolerances that they achieve on their watches, the quality of the synthetic lubricants that they make in-house, and the fact that Rolex uses solid case backs so there's no UV degradation of the lube. And so, yeah, a million refinements add up to a Rolex watch. I, I should dispel this myth unprompted. It does not take a year to make a Rolex, not by any conventional definition of making, but the level of quality that you get is is as good as it gets and they're completely unpretentious they never pitch themselves as something they're not Hublot's management will talk about fine craftsmanship when the watches are made by machines you know you'll have a lot of companies that talk about their precision engineering but the watch gains 20 second a day rolex promises exactly what it delivers consistency accuracy and enduring value the Submariner built today looks like the Submariner that launched in 1953. Not exactly, but enough that the first buyer could have recognized today's watch as an evolution of his. If you look at the history of something like Roger Dubuis, the early watches look nothing like the watches today, which look nothing like the watches from the 2000s. And that kind of obsolescence can grate on a person who lays out his own money, whether buying new or pre-owned. At least with Rolex, you know the Daytona's never going to be design, and the movement is never going to be a bad timekeeper unless you really run it into the ground. Right. I mean, I, I don't know any other watch uh, brands that people have brought to me saying that they haven't had the watch serviced in 20 years and it's literally still running. Maybe not to spec, but it certainly is running. It's telling some sort of time. Yeah, that's another one of those Rolex myths that I like to bust. I'm glad you brought that up because I've had so many people tell me in the same breath that they have not serviced their watch since they got it in the 80s. Oh, and by the way, Rolex watches are terrible timekeepers. I'm like, you're lucky it's keeping time at all. You never had the balance staff relubricated. You never had the watch cleaned and adjusted. It's still running on the original mainspring barrel grease. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, I mean, there's no reason why, a, you know, a 19,800 beat Rolex 1575 movement from the 70s should not be keeping chronometer grade time. It passed the chronometer test in its day. So what makes you think it couldn't do so today? Again, watches have service lives of hundreds of years. The limiting factor is almost always the willingness of the owner to take care of the thing. You take a Toyota from the 80s and you don't change the oil, it won't be running today. And that's a Toyota. That's pretty much as good as it gets for 80s reliability. Yeah. Well, I, anecdotally, you know, I have quite a bit of quite a few watches in my collection. And, you know, even my Panorama 233, every once in a while, I'll look down and the time is way off. You know, it's an eight day power reserve. Who knows during that entire, 
you know, wind down. There's some some sort of variance. I've never had that phenomenon with a Rolex ever. Have I ever looked at the at the time for a watch that I set, say, the day before, the day before that, or that I've been wearing every day because it's an automatic and is, is something you know very different than what it should be. Yeah, the only Rolex watches that are not going to keep good time by modern standards are going to be poorly maintained Rolex watches and maybe the very earliest examples. But remember, in the early days, they were among the most prolific certifiers of chronometers in the 19s. So they were on board already. They were on board when the Bureau Officiel was the one that would certify the watch a chronometer as opposed to the COSC. So yeah, Rolex watches are really good in the sense that something that is super consistent maybe not artisanal but super consistent is really good like johnny walker blue yeah you can name a million different scotches and bourbons and whiskeys that are more expensive or artisanal or celebrated in wine speculator i mean a million different things like that but johnny walker blue is always exactly as good no matter when you buy it or where you buy it it's always a smooth consistently high grade experience and it's worth the money you pay and then some. And I would say that about Rolex, particularly if you're buying Rolex retail. Look, if tomorrow Rolex decided to charge three times the price for the Daytona and pocket the aftermarket's premium, they could easily do so. The fact that they don't shows integrity. Maybe that's a good pivot point to some of the market myths. Yeah, we can talk about that. So it's funny you brought this up because in a previous life, I was a uh, gray market dealer for iPhones. Uh, this is how <laughs> yes. I started. You know, I was in college and I, we found out there's a gray market for iPhones. And the way that they ended this gray market is that they increased their prices for, for unlocked phones because we would buy them. They would all be locked. That was the whole idea. And then we would sell them to guys who would unlock them and there would be a large variance in the price point because of that. So that they just, after I think the third must have been 2010 or so, like when the third iPhone came out, they started selling them for what we were selling them for suspiciously, but already unlocked. So you could buy one, you can get it at a discount through AT&T, or you could buy it unlocked and pay the full gray market price. So they could, so Rolex could do this if they wanted to, but again, they, they've decided it's not, it's not necessary, right? So, so, uh, and, and again, so let's, let's talk about that. So in a broad sense, you hear, uh, Rolex watches are overpriced, right? And then there's a lot of different people who want to decide why that is, you know. And one of them is that uh, they cause shortages, right? That they that they underproduce on purpose, like De Beers uh, or something, right? Exactly. It, and again, which the De Beers thing is is more complicated than people make it seem. Also, uh, and it's not really a, even a thing anymore. But yeah, I mean, I think that people, even the most intelligent people I know tend to gravitate towards these conspiracies that they want to know they want to feel like there's somebody sitting in a large armchair and a large desk who's looking at it and saying screw those consumers we're going to run up the price and yeah, this is what their this is what their idea is but i'd say well from what i know right rolex is a machine in the sense that everything that they do is essentially pre-planned and they're not they're not just flying off the, the by the seat of their pants right so as demand has risen, they haven't shortened the supply. And in fact, they, and, and I've been in, I was in manufacturing kind of before this, uh, before I got in the watch world. So I have an understanding of how, number one, how to scale up and scale down manufacturing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a button you press, right? There's, there's a, a million different factors in terms of uh, manufacturing and distribution in that sense. So, um, you know, what, what I've been told, and I guess it's unofficial, is that 
Rolex sets their production schedules at least five years in advance for most models, right? Which makes sense to me and the way that I've seen things go out. And then again, peeking behind the, the I guess, the curtain, you know, I get to see, uh, you know, Godberg Jewelers, which owns Watchbox, uh, is an authorized dealer of Rolex. So I get to see how many watches come in and I can compare those year after year. And I'm seeing that basically it's basically the same going back as far as I can look. Um, but yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, didn't mean to cut you off there. No, nah, I was just finishing a sentence. That's all. I had nothing more to say. Well, man, yeah, I don't like to be like that. Like, <laughs> it's okay. I just want to throw this out there. A lot of people don't realize when they walk into a Rolex dealer that Rolex does not operate company boutiques. If Rolex wanted to gouge, it would do three things. One, it would raise the prices on the watches at retail, which they could do without increasing production at all. Why would they be surrendering you know, potential 300% profit on a steel Daytona to the aftermarket if they don't if they don't want to do that. They're willing to do that because they want the person who buys the watch to get a fair price. Now, the dealer is always independent. Rolex could decide to do what FP Journe and Audemars Piguet are doing and just go full vertical, make every dealer a Rolex dealer instead of selling the watch to a dealer at a wholesale price and then allowing the dealer to sell it at a retail price. Rolex could very easily sell its entire production of steel sports watches over the internet on a website without even having to take out 10-year leases on boutiques. They could do this tomorrow, and they don't, which shows that they keep faith with their dealers. And sometimes they keep faith with these mom-and-pop shops in the American Midwest or in the interior of continental Europe that have been distributors forever. And again, they could yank that distribution immediately and sell all the watches themselves at retail price. They don't do it. They could raise the price on some of these models by, you know, 300% and they don't do it. And they will go to dealers. And if you're a Rolex dealer, you have to keep paper receipts for the watches you sell. And they will inspect all those receipts to make sure that the watches are not being sold above the listed retail price. You know, there was a time in the past when maybe like 5 10% accommodations could be given on price for like less popular models. But first of all, the concern these days is the opposite. The dealer is going to try to gouge. And by keeping a paper trail, the dealer basically has to let Rolex come in at any time and check. Yep. And Rolex ghost shops. Rolex, yep. second only to their legal department, they've got ghost shoppers who are out looking for dealer markups and dealer trans shipping. And if watches are going to the gray market, even if they're on popular models, Rolex is looking out for that too. So again, a million things they could do or not do in the case of checking on dealers to let the market get out of control. And in every case, they stand by their dealers, they stand by their customers, and they check and they police to make sure that the dealers themselves are not responsible for this distortion. I would say the single greatest factor in the inflation of Rolex watches is the customer who buys the watch to sell the watch. It's in the, it's in the hands of the owner that the watch becomes an object of inflation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there would there's really only one way to deflate the current pricing. That would just be to uh, over uh, over manufacture these watches, right? So, like, if they decided to double their manufacture or triple or quadruple their manufacturing of, say, white dial Daytonas, and they started sending buckets of these to dealers, then at that point there is no waiting list. There's no uh, reason to pay over list for those watches, especially if you can get them, you know, in the uh, in the store. So that would deflate the pricing. But number one, 
that I don't, it, again, there's a million different factors in terms of, of turning up production that high. I can't see any company wanting to do that at all for any reason. I mean, it, it causes, there's a lot of different issues in terms of hiring, which is tough to do right now. Anyways, building out infrastructure, then also the distribution lines and then c- cutting margins. A lot of times as you increase production, your margins actually, in a lot of ways, depending on the types of metal you're using and, and the types of craftsmanship that you're, that you're having to do. So there, there is so many little factors that can go into it uh, in terms of increasing or decreasing production. And a lot of times Rolex won't do either of those things. They'll either just start a new line or end the line. And that's what they, that's what you're seeing over time. Like if they see that a watch is not performing as well. So like the 40 millimeter sea dweller didn't perform very well because it was essentially competing with the Samariner at the time. People looked at both watches and said, why the hell would I pay more for one when I can get one that looks the same? And uh, so they discontinue the model. That's one thing they'll do essentially on the fly as a reaction, but they're not going to increase production because it's very different. Increasing and ending production are very, very different uh, methods of, of handling these things. Yeah. In short, if Rolex really wanted to capitalize on the market right now, they would sell the watches direct and pocket the full retail price. They would raise the price at retail immensely so that their wholesale to the dealer would be higher. Or in the short term, they could make more watches, not double or triple, but they could make more. And they're not doing any of those things. So the Rolex, so-called Rolex shortage, uh, let's be perfectly honest. It's like everything else these days. Money's been cheap for a long time. Savings is unattractive. Interest rates are low. And just in the course of the pandemic, Americans have seen their net wealth increase by $2.1 trillion. It's not necessarily people getting $1,200 relief checks or unemployment who are buying these things, but wealthy people have seen their assets and stocks and equities and houses go up immensely. And those people, by means of the wealth effect, feel like they're flush with cash. And now they're chasing not just Rolex. Let's acknowledge the same thing's happening with Patek Nautilus, Aquanaut, AP Royal Oaks. It's happening with Richard Mille. It's even happening with Vacheron Overseas at this point. So you look at a cross-section of brands and it can't be a shortage of all of them at the same time. There's this huge cabal and like cartel-like restriction of Swiss watch production. No, it's just rampant demand as people are focused mostly on goods since they can't leave the house as much these days. There's not as much demand for services. So all that money that went into aircraft travel and hotels overseas and vacations and holidays, now it's going into watches and it's going into cars and it's going into electronics and all of those things are dear. So what was bad two years ago is absolutely torrid today for a bunch of reasons. Yeah, though, uh, so the watch world it absolutely has been affected uh, by COVID in this way, but I would say that the increase in demand started well before the COVID stuff. 2016, 2017 is when things became more, a little bit, uh, it, it started increasing and the, what I blame this on is well number one guys like you out there online educating our customers so that's so i tell this story um and i'll be brief about it because i said it on the on the uh on, on the podcast before but so i had a friend back around that time say 2015 or so um i came to his house uh he's a you know makes good money makes makes good money makes about a half a million dollars a year maybe a little bit more he's a business owner um you know owns a million dollar home has a hundred fifty thousand dollar boat um, you know, spends money on expensive things. Right. And he was looking at me, I was wearing a different Panerai and he asked me how much it was. And I told him it was about $5,000. And his reaction was who the hell would spend $5,000 on a watch. Right. This is, yeah. So fast forward now about five or six years. So he just spent $30,000 on a second Rolex. Right. Um, so the reason why I bring up that story is it's anecdotal, but uh, I've seen it across the board where, you know, in the past, how would somebody 
who wanted to get into the watch industry or were thinking about buying themselves a, a nice watch, how would they know the difference between, say, like a JLC and an Invicta? Yeah, I mean, you've got to have someone blabbering about it on YouTube, right? You didn't, there, before before the rise of all of you, essentially social media, right? Which will not yeah. you into that. Before that, how else would you get educated on watches? You'd have to know a buddy and hopefully trust him, right? Um, or you just you know just start making mistakes. And I had a lot of guys who who were making those mistakes, selling me their the, their maybe five years into collecting when they meet me and they're selling the first watch they bought at a huge uh, loss because they made a mistake and bought the Yuli Stardan at full full um, retail watch because they like the way it looked, right? So um, I think the social media popularizing and normalizing the purchase and trade of, of Swiss watches was kind of the beginning, right? And then mainstream media picking up on some of these crazy auction results too, um, yeah. to the, the Paul Newman Daytona was 2017 and whatnot. So you know that's, that's really kind of what started this off. And then obviously uh, COVID supercharged these things to, to you know, the levels that we we would never have guessed. Yeah, I think social media. Well, remember in 2019, I remember I wrote an article for Quill and Pad about the 5711. It was a seventy thousand dollar watch back then. It's up at least fifty thousand dollars. And if you want the green dial, multiples of that. But yeah, social media drives it. I think social media and auctions. A lot of people like to say that Watchbox manipulates the market, and I've heard that said. And I don't think they do because we don't leave a paper trail. Auctions leave a record of money paid for most of the high-end watches we sell, special Rolex pieces, F.P. Jorn, Debitune, Grubel Forcey. A lot of times the market moves so fast that we don't even know how to price it, so we don't list the price publicly. We have a discussion with the client who's interested, and we agree on a price that way. And then when the watch sells, we don't leave a record of the price. But with auctions, you have these hugely hyped mainstream events that leave pricing records and lead the market in a direction that's almost always concentrated on over a few brands. I mean, let's face it, if Watchbox could decide what wins and what loses, Breitling would be the world's most valuable watch brand because we've got piles of them. They're great watches, but you know, you buy a Breitling, you're going to lose money. We sell a Breitling. We're not expecting to get the crown jewels of England for it. So, it, you know, if, if I had my choice and I were really pulling the strings here, uh, it would be a combination of Oris and Breitling and Vacheron and Langa and watches that we can buy relatively cheap and sell it at a still handsome discount to give a customer a good value. I don't have any control over the fate of, you know, Maitre du Temple. And that's those watches are designed by name brands. The Maitre du Temple Chapter 3, Carrie Voudelin and Andreas Streller. If the watch were made individually by either of them, it would be $150,000. Combine them under the Maitre du Temple name, and it's $50,000 in, in precious metal. So, wow. I mean, no, we're... I wish I could say we were that influential, but we, we sell at market price, and oftentimes we scratch our head and wonder what the market is thinking, um, both in terms of what's valuable and what's not. Yeah. And well, to bring this back then to Rolex, they're not as powerful as Rolex is, they're not powerful enough to manipulate these pricings, the pricing you're seeing here. I mean, some of these things are pumped by dealers, right? So, like, dealers are also in the market competing with uh, end users to buy certain watches, but it's not enough to drive up a Daytona from 13,000 to 40,000. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, we're, we're getting a little bit of field of our myths, but we may as well bust a whole bunch of them at once. Uh, you know, it's like, Tim, you know, you created the FP Jorn hype. And I'm like, really? Rolex, Rolex is the most popular brand on Instagram. Did I create Rolex? 
You're gonna give it, should, should I send them the bill? I mean, really? That's just being ridiculous. Social media is difficult to control. And just as something that's emblematic of how out of control Rolex exposure on social media is, if you look at how many hashtags there are for the words Swiss watch versus Rolex, there are more hashtag connections to Rolex than there are Swiss watch. That's the entire industry versus Rolex and Rolex wins on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And, and not because of Rolex. It's because of the buyers. I mean, because of customers. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, look, Rolex makes great watches. Would I pay Richard Mille money for a Platinum Daytona? No, I probably wouldn't. But then again, I wouldn't pay Richard Mille money for a Richard Mille. So, you know, that's just me. I'm a nerd. Well, as a side note, I just had a conversation uh, uh, with, a, with a guy, a young guy who we're talking about collecting, and he's just getting started. He's actually going to buy Rolex Date 8. Uh, he was comparing it to uh, an Audemars 15500. And for my money, for because it's based, it's going to be roughly the same money in, in the mid-40s or so, I would pick the Date 8 um, much closer to its original retail, though sometimes that doesn't really matter. But also I feel like you get more with that watch than you would get for the AP. And also the service intervals is a big issue too. He's going to, he's picking the watch as a, as an everyday wear and also was hoping it would hold value over time. He's a Bitcoin, Bitcoin guy also. And I said, pick the day date, I think is, is the one. I yeah. Think. Rolex, Rolex service invoices are quite reasonable. Mm-hmm. Audemars Piguet service invoices. Once they've got your watch, it's like a ransom note. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Let me bust a quick myth here because it comes up a lot. If you start searching Rolex president or Rolex presidential on any search engine, YouTube, Google, Bing, if that's still a thing, you're going to see all these suggested types indicating that a Rolex president or presidential exists. And there's this idea that the Rolex date aid is officially named the president or nicknamed the president by Rolex in the same sense that, you know, there is a submariner and there is a sea dweller. No, there is no Rolex president. And I should mention that there is a president bracelet. So a lot of people mistake the watch for its bracelet. It, ha- it has a name. It is the president bracelet. It was introduced in 1956 with the original model. And that is properly called the president. There is no president Rolex. And when people think of that, they're thinking of the day-date. Another great day-date myth is that it was never made in anything but precious metal. It was, but there are very few of them, possibly seven, maybe seven to 10. Because in the late 1950s, the 6611 was built on a sort of prototype series basis. They made maybe six of them in steel. And I think they were Italian market. And the idea was just just to test the waters. There was another 1803 date from the 1970s that was made in steel. And that's how I come up with that number of about seven. So, yes, it existed. No, you can't buy it. I, you just blew my mind. I did not know that this was the case. So they made stainless steel presidents absolutely madness that's 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 ridiculous that i i did not know that until speaking to you right now they're they are out there also another myth that rolex doesn't jump on the limited edition bandwagon that rolex doesn't make limited editions i can think of at least four times rolex made limited editions the original 100 date date uh, date justs i should say back in 1945 the first 100 that was a limited run in uh, roughly 1964, over the next decade, they made 1,000 examples of the original pre-Cellini King Midas. In 1970, the Rolex 5100, the Beta 21 with the design by Gerald Genta, and it was Gerald Genta, uh, they made, I believe, 1,000 of those 
all in precious metal. They made, I don't know if you want to consider this to be a limited edition, but they, I believe they made nine platinum integrated bracelet day dates for the Shah of Iran in the 1970s. And I believe it was the reference 1831. It looked like an oyster quartz day date, but it was made of platinum. They had lacquer dials and it was the reference 1831. They made both the edition and the model for him. And I believe there were nine of those. And then in, I want to say 2010, there was a Japanese market limited edition silver dial and black dial of the date just turnograph. And they made 300 of each just for the Japanese market. And you'll know you're looking at them because they're two-tone. And they have black or white silver dials. The black dial, for example, with its green hand is immediately recognizable. It really pops. And you got to be careful sending them in for service because some regional Rolex service outlets don't know that this watch exists. And they will try to replace the specially colored elements like the green hands. Um, so you got to make sure you send that to Rolex Geneva with a little note. Because they will recognize it, but I'm not sure Rolex in Latin America or down in Texas or New York is going to recognize that watch. They will try to revert it to a conventional uh, turnograph. Jeez. Wow. That's crazy. That's right. Yeah, I have, I have heard plenty of Rolex special editions. I mean, well, also that the James Cameron is, I guess, a limited edition. I guess it is. It's probably is a special edition. It's not a limited edition. They, they make they make a finite number of them per year. In that sense, I guess every watch is a limited edition, right? There's otherwise it would be infinity, and we'd have no Rolex shortage. Exactly, and maybe maybe you just solved that right there. By the way, so so there's that, and um, I also think this. I'm gonna let you take this one because it's more of a sales question than a product knowledge one. But there's this myth that gold Rolex sports watches no don't sell uh, my experience over the last three years if they ever didn't they do now yeah I mean uh, I'd say the answer well so that was one of the misconceptions that I've heard is that uh, uh, Rolex has never lose value which is like kind of like a broad kind of a silly statement but I've heard very very intelligent people say this to me like oh you know I like Rolex just because they don't lose value it's like there's so many things that go into this like number one how much are you paying for the watch right so if you bought, it's say in 2010, you bought a uh, a Rolex Date for full retail, yeah, you lost some value at that point, right? Uh, in 2021, not so much, right? So it, it it definitely comes down to you know what what the market is driving. But at this point, even special, uh, even uh, precious metal Rolexes, which are I guess the last ones to really pop, like you were talking about the the platinum Daytona, which was the first ceramic Daytona, was a dog. In, in in the sense of holding its re, holding value, I mean those watches used to trade for thousands and thousands below their their um, retail value. And I think you know what I, I'm going to look this up now because um, I can tell you for a fact that I used to shoot my shows on the third floor of the Govberg Boutique in Central Philadelphia. And for the first two years I was there, we had a one one six five zero six platinum Daytona in the case, sitting, 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 sitting. $75,000 watch. No one bought it. No one was interested. Major market. Anyone could fly down from New York, fly up from Miami. We're at the crossroads of major consumer markets, and that watch wasn't moving. Today, you're going to pay $120,000 to $150,000 for that watch if you can find it. And it just sat there at seventy five dollars for years. Nobody cared about it. And then there was rumors that it was going to be discontinued. And all of a sudden, they realized, hey, man, this is a great watch that now, if you buy this watch in the past, if you bought that watch, what was the, and this was kind of especially for white metal 
Rolexes, uh, it was a sucker's bet. You know, I remember, I remember that was that was kind of like the way we looked at it, like a, a white gold Submariner. Why would you buy that when you can buy a stainless steel for you know whatever a quarter of the price? Same thing with the Daytona. Why would you buy a white metal Daytona that wasn't stainless steel? Why would you spend that much money on a watch? So now with the true recognition, and I think a lot of Rolex buyers, whether they want to admit it or not, even myself, right? If I'm going to go out and a, and a, and I want to have a watch that's going to show that I'm a successful person, maybe it's a celebration of my success, right? And I want people who maybe are not watch guys to know, hey, this I know, I know what I'm doing here. I'm going to wear I'm going to wear a Rolex, right? Because if I wear my Panerai, people are going to I'm not going to get that effect. If you don't know watches, you don't you don't know what the hell my Panerai is. You might say, hey man, that's a cool watch. It's really big. It looks like a great Invicta. But you're not going to know that it's a nice watch that I spent a lot of money on. So now, if you buy that platinum Daytona, enough people are going to are going to be looking. Maybe that's not your main reason. Maybe you you know you want you want to admit that. But a lot of times when you're buying a Rolex, that's the reason why you're buying it because you want people to know you're wearing a Rolex. Now a platinum Daytona is one of those watches. Yeah, there were two models that came out in 2016 when I went to Basel, and one was the blue dial white gold Daytona. The other was the yellow gold green dial Daytona. And for years and years, these just sat in the case, even through 2018, no one wanted them. If you wanted to buy the yellow gold in particular, discounts could be had. If you wanted to buy it, you'd buy it used for less than it sold for new. Now you can't get your hands on those. You can't get your hands on them. They're weight listed. When they sell used, they sell dear. And it's it's at the point now where the only Rolex gold watches that don't sell or don't hold their value or don't have a commanding aftermarket, you're going to be, you're looking at Cellini's and that's pretty much it. Well, there's one other. Uh, that I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it because they used to take massive hits. But the uh, the Yachtmaster Two in white gold and platinum, that watch yes. is still one that trades below its retail, not far anymore. But that used to be a watch that you'd buy it at retail for forty eight thousand dollars. You're going to get less than twenty thousand dollars in cash for that watch. Yeah, I guess we may as well throw in the Yachtmaster Two because that is a bit of a black sheep. That that in yellow gold is an even harder sell. But I will say this: there have been three different dial variations of the white gold Yachtmaster. One that ran from 2007 to 2013, uh, one that ran from 2013 to 2017, and the current version. And because after 2000, I want to say it was 13, the steel model came out, no one bought the white gold model anymore because the people who wanted the white metal had to pay the ransom to get it in white gold with a platinum bezel. As soon as the steel with the blue bezel became available, all of the sales for the white gold model dried up. So while the first generation of that dial is fairly common with the original movement 4160, the 4161s with the post-2013 and post-2017 dials are among the rarest modern Rolex watches, especially today. Yeah. And similarity to the steel model have slowed that thing to a crawl. If you have a post-2017 white gold Yachtmaster 2, someday you will be able to name your price for that. Take advantage of the fact that no one wants it today. I know people are going to be skeptical about that, but I think we're also going to wind up thinking, you know, goddamn, the Cellini Prince, how cool was that thing? I wish I'd bought two, one for the safe and one for the wrist. I do think that as little as those white gold Yachtmaster 2s cost right now, you could get yourself one of those things for less than the price of a steel Daytona steel Daytonas are $40,000 watches now and up. Like I'm yeah, seeing some of these things close with- now. It, it, they, so, uh, last year, the answer was absolutely yes. They're probably in the $35,000 range. Now they're creeping up to the, to the low to mid forties. Um, it's a $48,000 retail, but I mean, there's yeah. a couple of issues here and this is for Rolex in general, right? Um, if you go above 42 millimeter, then the trade value drops dramatically. 
from the retail value. So like you're looking at deep seas, 44 millimeter deep seas are not watches that are trading multiples of the retail, right? So like the James Cameron will be over, the black dial will probably be right at. So if you're selling it to a dealer, obviously it's going to cost you a few bucks. The 44 millimeter Yachtmaster, especially in, in white gold, the platinum bezel, like I don't know anyone who doesn't lift weights twice a day, seven days a week who can who can really wear that watch comfortably. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that and the 43 millimeter Sea Dweller, especially the two-tone one, slow movers. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's really the only weakness in Rolex sports watches. To this day, you can go out and buy a Daytona from the 2000s, 2010s, 1990s with the Zenith movement. If you're comfortable with two-tone, you've still got to buy, and that is the buy. Like, it's easy to miss, but that is the buy. I always tell people who don't like the two-tone, tone it down. Mm-hmm. Put it on a leather strap. All of a sudden, especially with the 90s version, which, you know, where the bracelet isn't really a big deal because it's not beautifully built. It's a historic Rolex oyster, but it feels it. Put that on a brown or a black leather strap with a contrasting stitch. All of a sudden, it's going to look great. And the guy who wasn't two-tone can suddenly love that watch and the price you're going to get buying that watch compared to going out and buying yourself a steel Daytona, you know, from the Zenith era or the Mm -hmm. 10s or the 2000s. The last 30 years of steel Daytonas, they've all gone nuts. But two-tone all the way back to the 90s, when it was really scarce because Zenith was constrained. Zenith really was constrained in movement supply. Uh, those are still obtainable and they look great on straps. Do that. That's what I say. Well, what, yeah, that's madness. So if you're talking about, if we're going to go a little off topic and talking about kind of value in Rolex still, yeah, the two-tone, especially older two-tone watches. So for example, right now you can buy a reference 16523, which is the Zenith movement two-tone Daytona, right? So uh, you can buy that watch for well under $20,000, whereas if you get the same exact watch, so the 16520, same movement, right? And what makes that watch special is the movement. It's a, that's what they call it, the Zenith Daytona, right? And it, Because the, the quality of the build is not nearly what the upgraded ones are, the post-2000, um, uh, post-Zenith uh, ones are. So you're buying that because it has a Zenith movement. A steel one's going to cost you upwards of $30,000 right now, full set. I mean, it's the same watch, except that one of them actually has gold content, whereas the other doesn't. And it's half the price. And I actually owned a two-tone Zenith Daytona in 2019. I did a, quite a bit of collecting that year. Um, I want to say I bought it for, i trying to remember how much I paid for that watch. I want to say I bought it for probably around fourteen dollars or $15,000. I ended up trading it i got from a dealer about thirteen thousand. so i lost money on the watch so when you say you don't lose money on a rolex it happened i only had it for like six months or so but i i I wanted to buy something else so i traded that watch and i you know whenever i trade a watch i look back and i see oh man the watch exploded in value well i look back and it's about the same maybe it's gone up a little bit a few thousand but nothing compared to uh say even the zenith daytona from 2018 or 2019 to now so um yeah i mean there certainly is value in or future upside in a lot of the a lot of Rolex watches, but I don't know if there exists that in like this uh, like a ceramic steel white dial at forty thousand at this point. So I think we've covered just about all the myths and misconceptions we had in mind. Is was there anything further that you wanted to throw out there? No, I think I think we get it. We got it, man. We we've actually got off topic quite a, quite a bit too. So yeah. I think we, we took care of it. We're, we're under the hour mark, which I appreciate. We're at 51 minutes. So unless you have some other topics, we can go ahead and end this. No, the only thing I would add is let's do it again in the future. 
Sweet. All right. Well, I'll get you on my schedule. We, you know, this is a, a weekly podcast. We we uh, publish every Tuesday. So um, I'm happy. I, you and I can have uh, long discussions about all sorts of things that I can learn about. So <laughs> I'm happy to, to chat with you, man. Looking forward to it, Josh. Thank you so much. Yeah, not a problem. So guys, uh, if you're listening now, 51 minutes into it, number one, you're a champion. We really appreciate that. Tim and I both do because we know how hard it is to get through some of these. Um, hopefully you learned a few things. Um, if you want to reach out to me on Instagram is the best way to do it. It's at Mr. Thanos, M-R-T-H-N-O-S. Tim's on Instagram as well. Your, uh, what's your handle on Instagram, Tim? I am Tim underscore Masso. Just type in Tim Masso, you'll find me. That's right. Tim has uh, millions and millions at this point of views on his uh, on his hands-on reviews. He, you used to do one-minute reviews. Now you're doing like full uh, full reviews on your Instagram now, right? Both one-minute reviews and the full length. You can see my YouTube length reviews that are five to six minutes, or you can see the one-minute. And I'm posting the best stuff to Instagram, a lot of which is not visible on thewatchbox.com. So this will be the only place you can publicly see some of the high-end pieces, specialist pieces, independent brands, and rarities. They're on my Instagram, not necessarily on our commercial platforms. Oh, yeah. I, I know this firsthand. I get customers who say, hey, man, why didn't you tell me this came in? And they see it's to info. It's like, oh, shit, I didn't know. Tim, I'd say Tim walks into the vault, right, with a little bucket. And he takes his pick of whatever the hell he wants. He grabs a hold of that, takes it to his office, and starts doing one-minute reviews. I mean, it doesn't get more real than that. And it's uh, and when I talk to my customers, they say, "Hey, keep me up up on all the new stuff." I go, "Listen, just follow Tim because anything that's new and cool that comes in, he's going to get his hands on it first, anyways." So uh, it's it's a great sales tool for me, but it also caused me to spend a few bucks too. If I if I spend time watching your watch reviews, it just makes me want to buy watches. So uh, I appreciate that. Um, well, so, uh, speaking of that, Tim does have a YouTube channel, watch, Watchbox reviews, which is essentially his YouTube channel. Um, the company Watchbox also has Watchbox studios where we're going to have all of the, uh, uh, other content, more personality content, talking about the market, and whatnot. Mike Mangos has an amazing show that's released every Saturday that I love called the, uh, uh, the market wrap, which is fantastic. So you can check that out. Otherwise, um, you know, make sure you're subscribing to this podcast and uh, see you next Tuesday. Bye, guys.